Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen classes and trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen class library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. When we think of entrepreneurial wellness leaders here at MindBodyGreen, someone who comes immediately to mind is Greg Steltenpol. Greg founded Adwala in 1980 out of his band's Volkswagen van in San Francisco. Since then, Greg has gone on to start one of the most pioneering beverage companies in the space right now, Calafia Farms, where he's the founder and CEO. Greg's incredible life and entrepreneurial journey will surely leave you inspired. Hi, it's Jason Walker, the founder and CEO of MindBodyGreen, and welcome to the MindBodyGreen podcast. Today, we are really fortunate to have the visionary entrepreneur, the founder and CEO of Calafia Farms, Greg Steltenpol with us. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Jason. So uh, you've got an amazing story. So we're, we're going to try to go back to the beginning. You, you, you graduate from Stanford in 1977, yeah. degree in, in environmental science. So what, what were you thinking back then? <laughs> you were early. But then you be, but you're a jazz saxophonist too. So talk to me about that. You know, when I was in high school, I was learning how to play the saxophone, and uh, had a a friend who was actually talented, and uh, I was aspiring. <laughs> and it, during that time, actually, it was early '70s, transition from the '60s, and mm. in music and in jazz, in that particular time, it was extremely exploratory. So it was capturing all this spirit of revolution from the 60s mm-hmm. but i was on the tail end of all of that yeah. so i got into stanford in 1972 and uh wasn't even thinking of going there but was passing through town and picked up a hitchhiker which is a, <laughs> says a lot in those days that you just felt comfortable doing that um and it was a graduate student and was uh, extremely politically educated and that was all new terrain for me. So I dropped him off in campus and all the buildings were boarded up and the windows were broken and there were slogans all over the walls. And I thought, this is a dynamic place to go to school. <laughs> right? Little did I know that the next year they clamped down on all of that and uh, changed the uh, recruiting practices for students and kind of, you know, trimmed it up a bit and there were a lot more pre-meds and all that (laughs) after that. But I I think, you know, the real thing for me was um, I kind of grew up, my my dad loved jazz and uh, it it affected my attitude towards everything. You know, the idea of coming out of adversity, of improvisation, of, you know, beauty and also 
non-traditional cultural ways of looking at things. So those all, and, and particularly as I started studying you know, great black musicians, and I was really, that was what I was really inspired by. I started learning how structured a lot of the, and disciplined, uh, a lot of what I thought was com completely, you know, extemporaneous. Uh, so that was a humbling experience, and um, I realized that I was never going to be a, a world-class great. You know, I wasn't gifted. And so it's gifted plus work that makes it all happen and, and that kind of thing. But I, I still loved it so much, so I figured out I had to support myself. So the seeds were planted for what became Odwalla in those very early days. And, um, you know, it was a group of us who were like-minded musicians. Uh, we got together in Santa Cruz trying to figure out how to support ourselves. And, um, you know, the idea came to me one day when I was thrashing about trying to figure out how I could support myself. And literally, I mean, this is, this is going to set up a sort of tension in our <laughs> conversation. But I was browsing the aisles in this bookstore in, in Menlo Park, and I found a, a book called A Hundred Businesses You Can Start for $100. <laughs> which was $100 more than I had. Uh, so I couldn't buy the book, but um, I flipped through it and they had this concept of a chain or franchising lemonade stands, you know. <laughs> Today it'd be matcha bars, but you know, back then it was, you know, like get your own fresh squeezed lemonade thing. And I kind of thought to myself, well, I've always heard retail is, you know, not, not very easy, so maybe I could wholesale lemonade, you know. Um, anyway, I planted a seed in my mind, and then this is sort of where the tension comes in. Literally, a book fell off of the shelf and landed at my feet. This is literally true, and the book was Think and Grow Rich by oh, Napoleon Hill. Sure, great book. And I picked it up, and it was like full, it was like it, it created all these conflicts in me because I was dirt poor, living from like meal to meal, literally, and um, and so the idea of like of having some money appealed to me, but then all these things about Carnegie and the industrialists, and and I was already kind of a anti-authoritarian and an alternative, you know, critique of the system. <laughs> so, but it, it created this sort of weird alchemy in me between my sort of deeper core values but also this this idea that you could do something by manifesting you know mm. just by by kind of visioning things and then setting it in motion which was sort of those some of those key principles that napoleon hill talked about so anyway i think that's kind of a cult book now it's sort of come back oh, sure, and then, yeah. you know i, I hear it's still a bestseller but anyway those two books start something for a hundred bucks and think and grow rich were sort of the early origin points and then just i loved fresh squeezed orange juice i was raised on it my mom would squeeze it my, my dad like was a real snob about it so it would have to be chilled down to just the right temperature and um, I, I had spent a week uh, on my father's boat in Florida where he was retired and got off the boat every day, bought a bag of oranges, went back and squeezed it. 
came back to California and I was, you know, trying to learn music and literally broke. And that's when the two ideas came together. So I bought one box of oranges and a little tiny hand squeezer and um, squeezed up some orange juice that I took to a local restaurant. I got $11.20 from that sale. The box of oranges cost about seven bucks. And so I was able to pull together a few other bucks, got two boxes the next day and, and so on and so forth. And um, after like a year, literally, I think of 18 hour days in those days, it was literally for me. And, you know, I, I had a couple of co-founders that joined shortly thereafter. We worked literally every single day for more than a year. Um, like 18 hours and, and finally we got the thing off the ground and um, Odwalla became you know the first national fresh juice company. So you're, you're squeezing the juice, you're distributing the juice, you're doing, you're, you're showing up to the, you've, you're doing everything that first year. Yeah well more importantly we were able to buy a bu- or get a bunch of egg cartons from all the places we distributed to and, and put them up in the back room and made a little recording studio so we would kind of jam at night and then get up early and so literally we'd go from playing music and then squeeze squeeze up the batch for the next morning deliver it go back and sleep for a while in the afternoon and early evening and then come <laughs> so that that for a few years that was a golden period of music and juice together so this great. is so this is around 1980 right 19, yeah yeah so, odwalla started in 1980. so when did you know you really had something with with odwalla where you said okay wow this is this is a real business we need to raise capital or we need to expand distribution or or did, did you when you started too i'm also curious was it hey this is a cool idea let's run with it did you did you have a little bit of that napoleon hill th- thinking girl rich and say wow i envision this as a, a massive juice company what, what was it what was going on in your head back then well i i mean in, in all honesty you know i i was there were there were different forces you know and influences i i would say music was was one and having community so you know we only hired musicians that had vw buses because we had to use everybody's personal car to haul the juice around so literally we had this fleet of vws for a while <laughs> And later we we started adopting pickups as well. But there was this community aspect. There was my own background in environmental science. And even at that time at Stanford, there was no environmental degree. So fortunately, Stanford had a kind of unusual program that if you qualified for another major, you could design your own major and then you know, make a degree if it passed with a different title. So as far as I know, I think I have the first environmental science degree (laughs) there, but environmental awareness was a big factor too. So back then, even then, Paul Ehrlich was teaching at Stanford and uh, the whole idea of what projecting forward and long-term thinking about the planet and also, I was I was a geology ma- core major, so the long-term thinking about planetary changes. So this idea of climate change mm-hmm. was baked in, like the possibility and the historical reality of it through time. I already knew scientifically back, you know, in the in the seventies, um, and it was being taught, you know, 
um, at the university level. And then just future thinking that I got exposed to there around where the planet was going to be in, you know, 40, 50 years, which mm -hmm. is now where we, where we are today, you know. So those things all kind of gestated and together with the fact that um, I had personal passions for food and beverage and I, I was raised in a family where my mom was a chef, uh, she cooked for uh, ex-president Ford and um, uh, other wealthy families and she had her own food businesses throughout her life. So I, I grew up around, a, you know, kind of chef's household and yeah. uh, developed a, a confidence in my own palate. So that really helped me go forward with the companies, you know, that I've had since then. And, and so, you know, there was sort of a soup, you know, yep. a, a different ingredients in the soup mix. And um, to answer your question directly, when did I really see the potential? There was a kind of, there, there was a confluence of things that happened. One was, you know, it, there's against all odds, you know, so... The, there's a point at which you have to really feel you can really do it. You mm -hmm. know, at first it's all exuberance and ignorance and you yes. know all this other stuff, and then there's a point at which you're starting to have to borrow seriously, and you know, you know, you're hiring and you're getting it's getting complicated, and then the commitments are getting longer, right? Um, so we had this little thing going on where when we do our routes, we come back and put the change that we had from the cash into a big jar. So we had a jar that was about a foot tall filled with these coins. So one day we said, well, let's have a contest and whoever guesses the thing be a bonus. You know, somebody will win the lottery, who knows, <laughs> you know. So we counted it out and I had guessed it down to the quarter. Like, <laughs> so I, I thought to myself, that's weird, you know. I guess I uh, have some kind of strange tuning to what we're doing, you know. And um, so I, I said, okay, I, I, that's sort of a sign that I can trust my, my instincts in uh, what's going on in business. But, I, you know, I later learned a lot of hard lessons around ignoring that, you know, which we can talk about what were, later. Yeah, what, what were some of those hard lessons? Well, just, you know, strictly to the point of not listening to yourself and thinking that uh, at that time, you know, alternative, well, this is called, called natural foods were in their infancy. So Whole Foods was just getting started, right. wasn't really aggregating yet. And we were coming out of an era of co-ops, yeah. Which so in the '60s the hippies would get together and you know do joint buying so they could lower costs and it was also a way to get together you could buy things in bulk and then you know have you know some collectivism you know I studied communes at the time and so communalism was was a sort of you know interesting idea that was definitely in vogue at the later end of the uh, '70s and. You know, out of those early beginnings, the first natural stores and some entrepreneurs emerged. And like Paul Hawken had Erwan, then Paul got into the gardening business and wrote a book called The Next Economy, which kind of encapsulated some of these early new entrepreneurial ideas around people creating businesses that were healthier and better and 
and just looking forward, you know. Mm -hmm. And then as Whole Foods came on the scene, they they allowed some entrepreneurs like Odwalla to plug into that and start to grow a little more rapidly. And then there was the these distributors that were serving the natural foods community. And uh, so those were the early beginnings of starting to be able to scale some things. But Odwalla, we were taking fresh fruits and vegetables literally everything like bananas and peeling them and and um, strawberries from Watsonville that were freshly picked and you know tons of fresh oranges that we were getting from the Central Valley so it was this massive fruit processing uh, you know very labor intensive and a lot of backbreaking work and you know I started looking down I was participating in that so from you know early exhaustion, you try to look for ways that it can rationalize, get better production design. So we, the culture of Odwalla started to develop uh, technology forward thinking in terms of um, minimizing labor, uh, you know, backbreaking labor and all that. So that early thinking, and then my, my father was a systems engineer in the defense industry, so I had this kind of, he was German, <laughs> so I had this German engineering and then kind a, of... And then a mother is a chef. You right. Got both. <laughs> Needless to say, they were not compatible, but the, the funny thing is, like, I sort of am a weird amalgam of, of their uh, gifts or passions, you know, or, or disciplines, and um, that... That gave me uh, a sort of a foundation for a way to think about growing a natural food company that was more robust and, and had more infrastructure to it. So at its peak, what did Adwala look like in terms of employees, scale, your day-to-day and time, yeah. What, how much time had passed? Well, Odwalla ended up being sold, That the entrepreneurial phase of it ended in... Um, 2001 when it was sold to Coke, but uh, the period, that 20-year period... Um, Tell me about I, the high, the high of that period yeah. and the low of that period. The, the high of that period, uh, I mean, there were, there were many highs, and I, I think the big high wasn't so much a sales number as just a cultural phenomenon, sure. and there were a lot of aspects to it, and, and um, I, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to have, you know, someone who wants to listen or ask good questions ab- about it because the period was really like seminal in the best sense of the word in that we were we were extremely idealistic but also were into doing things as opposed to talking about it and, and just thinking about it. So we put into motion a lot of things that are just now starting to become, you know, much more adopted and thought about. So we, we were a, a pioneer in, um, you know, environmental thinking and applications relative to food. Um, Odwala had one of the first relationships with a place called Earth College in Costa Rica, which was the first kind of sustainable agricultural college in Latin America. Mm. And we were their first customer buying banana, organic banana puree uh, here. Um, we we were the first uh, proponent of a thing called the natural step, which Paul Hawken became the sure. head of uh, in the U.S. for a while and was started in Europe by Carl Heinrich Robert. And it was the first 
like full systemic environmental thinking framework for introducing these ideas uh, in larger co uh, companies and cultures. So uh, we were, you know, our, our local supplier for strawberries was um, this farm just right up the road, Swanton Berry Farms. And Jim Cochran later became a big pioneer in the organic industry. So we were one of the few companies that was growing and could provide support and visibility to a lot of these early ideas. And then culturally inside the company, we employed a lot of women drivers. So we had a very, we were an early big uh, employer of LGBT, you know, uh, staff. We were running trucks that provided a, a more than a living wage, actually a really great wage to people at that time. So a lot of our route drivers, and this is back in the, in the 90s were making like uh, 75 to 90 grand wow. a year uh, running a route. And um, I had a kind of idealism and, and we, we as an organization really promoted distributed entrepreneurialism and all that. Yeah, how many people and, did you have working for you? I'm so curious because as companies scale and they get bigger, it's harder to, to be idealistic and harder to Culture is hard. Right. Well, the word idealism gets maligned, you know, and, and I think when people, we use the word, you know, it tends to be kind of fairy tale thinking without being grounded. And it was impossible not to be grounded when you had to make and deliver everything in a 24-hour period mm -hmm. with a fleet of trucks. So at that time, we probably had about 600 employees and, you know, a lot of routes at that time, maybe 300 routes. So you're all um, over the U.S. Well, we acquired a number of smaller companies yeah. as kind of a foothold in key markets. So in the New York market, we acquired a small company called Fresh Samantha that had built up at that time around uh, maybe a $20 million business on the wow. East Coast. And um, so be, at the time, Odwal was sold to Coke, it was around $100 million. So the scale of fresh, this was raw juices, right. you know. So it, it, um, we were somewhat inspired by things Federal Express had done. So we really analyzed the logistics of getting a, you know, a turnaround system. And by pioneering handheld computers at that time, so we installed, wow. we were the smallest company to install uh, small, they were made by Fujitsu, but little handheld computers that were actually this, about three or four inches thick, but they were, you know, maybe eight or 10 inches long and you could hold them. And then there were, a pr well, there was a printer mounted in the truck. Right. So um, that gave us just in time information about inventory on the shelf and all this kind of stuff. So we could manage this, what we call JIT, just in time, you know, route distribution, manufacturing, right. you know, so there was a, a lot of extremely rough logistical problems that we had to solve. And there was no good refrigerated distribution system. So that's why we there had... There was no to, HPP. There was no culprit. There was no, none of that. It's no. just raw and... Yep. And we were using scales, starting to scale up the equipment and the, sta you know, the stainless processing um, that was involved. Yeah. So talk to me about, you know, leading up to the Coke sale. Talk to me about, you know, E. coli and how that affects, like what... 
how that affected you, the business, and what that was. I can only imagine how hard that was. Yeah, as I think most people went, uh, no, we went through a really devastating recall um, in, in um, 1996, mm-hmm. and uh, we got a call one day, you know, went to work, and the irony was I had an appointment with the, um, that morning with a guy named D. Hawk, and D. was the chairman of Visa, and D. had just written this book called The Chaotic, uh, or Chaotics, which was this uh, brilliant book. He had been spending a lot of time uh, with the Santa Fe Institute, and it was um, chaos and order together. <laughs> um, and it was about how to apply it to organizational thinking and, um, you know, like transformational ideas, really heady stuff. So I was really excited about showing up, meeting him first thing in the morning, nine o'clock, and a call had come in. Uh, my partner picked it up, and I uh, said, "Greg, you better come in here and and uh, listen to this." And it was the uh, Department of um, Health in uh, King County in Seattle, and they said, "Well, we've found." eight or 10 cases of E. coli poisoning. And right now we're not too sure, but it seems like some common element these people are saying is they've had apple ju- fresh apple juice. And, um, you know, m- most of the people have said that they've had an Odwalla product. So, um, you know, we, we kind of walked through, you know, the information that they had and really thought about it, and then we we started looking more into the E. coli 0157, which is the one that actually makes people ill, and um, found out that um, apple juice, well, it had been found in, in the past in fresh apple juice. So mostly in the East Coast in small apple cider mills where uh, a lot of the apple cider uh, mills use grounders, you know, so apples that have fallen off go because they're softer and stuff, and they go to the cider, and then the fresh pack ones are the, you know, sound and crispy ones that are better looking. And that's where they had found this issue. Well, we had just built a new facility that had this state-of-the-art washing system and, you know, chlorine and, uh, you know, we had seen all the other uh, facilities that every other juice company was using, and we were pretty convinced that we had, like, you know, um, a bomb-proof um, application that was the best of its kind. Um, but that wasn't good enough. And as we later read into the literature, um, E. coli 0157 is extremely adaptable and. Um, higher acid products usually are uh, a deterrent and you know we found out the hard way obviously that that's not good enough and that uh, they can live in um, uh, in that environment so um, we never found it in the plan or um, any of that but in that process of thinking it through we just realized that it was going to take months to get to the bottom of it and either we had to just come out to the public and ask people to take it off the shelf and voluntarily, you know, if they had it at home, not to drink it. Right. 
So we called a press conference and did all that, and you know, obviously the sales, and we had to recall the product. Um, so for that year, we lost 90% of our sales. And, um, you know, so we went from being basically a run rate of around 100 million back down to a $10 million company. Right. And then someone, and, yeah. It's like, it's like, how do you even go through that as an entrepreneur where, you know, you're, You've got you've got a vision. You know you think you're you're doing right. You're you're checking every box. You're trying. You're being as safe as possible. You believe in sustainability. You're you're start. You're doing so good, and then and then this thing happens, which yeah, seems yeah. like it came out of left field, and 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 then someone potentially lost their life, and this whole thing. Like, how do you even like? What's going through your head? It's like why? Like why me? Like how do we get through? Like are you in survival mode? Like what was that like for you? Yeah. Um well, it was definitely, um, I was on point for sure, but it was, it was a collectively um, sobering and, and, you know, sorrowful time for the, because it was a real community at Odwal at that time. Sure. So I think everybody, uh, route drivers and, and everyone who had to be on the front line took it just as seriously as I did. So, but yeah, it was like the worst possible thing because the ideals and the core values were built around health and wellness. Yeah. And when, when you saw that the possibility that you were actually making people sick with something that, you know, was a result of your best intentions, right. this is like a, you know, sure. Uh, for sure a uh, discontinuity in, in the, um, in the mind field there. So we, you know, I think the company responded extremely, I mean, the, the rallying and the coordination and the kind of passion by which people wanted to protect everyone from any possible exposure. So we were able to perform a record recall and all that. Um, but then there was many, you know, almost two very painful years to rebuild the company. We adopted a new technology or, you know, uh, uh, adapted, I should say, flash pasteurization. And we were able to um, make it so that the, the taste difference was very minimal. Uh, but it wasn't raw juice anymore. So the enzymatic activities, which were really a big proponent, we were big proponents of, were no longer present. So we shifted a lot of the focus over to more nutritionally enhanced beverages at that time. And Odwala had been pioneering, you know, these superfoods. So we had launched and, and been very successful in growing that section of the business, you know, with high vitamin C drinks, spirulina and blue-green algae mm -hmm. and chlorella and all of that You're stuff. The first. So we had this one called Superfood. And, what was in that? Um, well, that was all, all that of those, all those in Nova Scotia Dulce. And um, we, we had a mushroom drink. We experimented with... Way, way before Four Sigmatic. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we had... Who uh, uh, are great guys, by the they way. They are but, um, The... We, we were looking at every possible interesting thing you could do with nutritional substances and looking to speed up the commercialization of it because we had this just-in-time manufacturing system sure. and distribution. 
So that just kind of brought everything back down. We had to focus on basics. And of course, um, you know, we had outside investors then that, that became majority investors. So what was that process and, like for you? Or you? Oh, it was like, I mean, it was... Are the, you sleeping? Or are you... <laughs> not much. I mean, there was a lot of, obviously, public relations repair and, and just getting the retailers to gain confidence back with us. But because everyone in the company worked so hard and, and we owned our own coolers and distribution system, uh, we were able to do an amazing job. And within two years, the company's sales were back wow. to where they were and to the point that um, you know the investors wanted to get their money back and, and they sort of forced a sale to Coke. And, um, was that a uh, fun that, experience or where was your not, head at? Not for me. I mean... Um, they, you know, I think there was a group inside the company that, um, you know, I say group, you know, group of the investors, and they had their own finance guy in there, and and um, it all uh, started to take its own path. And the founders group uh, was not not really uh, considered that much at that point, sure. you know. So. Um, and, and for a while, we had even developed just before that, and this, is, this was adding to, to the tension or the irony of, the, of this event, was that Odwalla had developed a relationship with a group called the Bioneers. And the Bioneers, Kenny Osabel and Nina Simons, um, Kenny was on the board and Nina worked in marketing at Odwalla. And we, we were starting to use Odwalla as the main sponsor of Seeds of Change. And um, Seeds of Change was like practical solutions to restoring the environment. And we were very much into uh, restorational soil practices, um, native agricultures, and um, bringing a lot of these ideas and starting to popularize them. And, mm-hmm. Guys like Paul Stamets, who sure, you know, Mr. Mushroom, a pioneer of uh, mushroom thinking, and uh, we were. Th- this was a super interesting time because Odwalla was this popularization vehicle, a way to get things out to the mass progressive food culture through our distribution system. And there weren't that many companies that had 100 million in sales at that time, you know, in natural foods. We were one of the largest. And we were a crossover company. Like, we were in Safeway. We were in, yeah. you know, maybe even some Walmart, but definitely Costco was a big customer. And, of course, all the natural food. So it was, it was like in the popular culture. Mm-hmm. And we still had this kind of iconoclastic artwork and creative thinking. And, and that just all came, you know, imploding back. We had to focus on basics. And then Coke got involved. And, um, you know, I just, I was very frustrated as an entrepreneur because I felt like the coolest thing was the fact that Odwalla was a brand that stood for all this. Yep. It had not only, it had built trust, lost trust, and regained trust. And that, Hard to do. That was an a, a amazing platform to go forward with. And I think for Coke, they, they needed to look at it as a very narrow vertical market share type thing. So you sell the Coke, and then what's what's next for you? What do you think? Well, I didn't say... Well, mean, well you, the, the brand sells I, the, the Coke. Brand the brand sells the Coke, sells, right. Understood. I, I, I mean... So what um, are you thinking? What year is this? This is 96 now. 
Right. No, no, the, the recall happened, the we, we recovered in two years, and then the conversations around the sale started, and then it consummated at the end of 2000 and okay. early 2001. Um, uh, I, I started doing some work with DHOC and the Chaotic uh, Alliance Group, and uh, I ended up launching this project called the Intera Project, which was uh, using a um, the payment card networks to support local economies. Hmm. And... Um, because at Odwalla, we were distributing to all these small stores in everywhere. We had this network of small retailers. And I realized that there was an unfair playing field between the big supermarkets and uh, companies like Starbucks that had these loyalty card systems. And I said, you know, one problem is little guy, if a guy shops there every day, the consumer, the, you know, they never get a little kickback. You know, they have other perks from the. So, so you don't say, "I'm going to take some time off." I'm going to. No, no. <laughs> you, you jump no, right back in. Right, yeah, much to my family's, you know. So chagrin. But. Before, and I want to talk about the inspiration for Calafia. But before, if I'm correct, I think before that happens, you have a big health issue. Well, I, I, I or around also, that time. Yeah, in 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 about 2004, um, I got involved in co-founding this uh, a small juice company called Adina for Life, yep. and Adina was focused on fair trade. So you know, at Odwalla, we were focused on fresh fruit and vegetables, mainly in the U.S. We had some mango business in Mexico, but for the most part, it was. Um, U.S.-based stuff. And then we started, um, well, I started just looking at this whole issue of um, uh, global inequities, and um, I, I happened by chance met this uh, young African entrepreneur from Senegal, uh, and she had uh, noticed that when the big American soft drinks entered Africa, they were displacing the native drinks, which were formerly really healthy. So mm -hmm. they had, and hibiscus is a high antioxidant, you know, um, tea flower type flower, and uh, to and, and make these infusions with it. And now you could hardly get what was called bisap back then mm -hmm. in Senegal. So um, we joined forces, uh, you know, I got a lot of my uh, friends to invest and, and we started this company to promote these beverages from other countries. So that's when I got into coffee. So we were bringing fair trade coffee in um, from uh, so some Ethiopian back then and, uh, and uh, Indonesian coffees and, and Guatemalan. So that's when I got introduced to cold brew. Um, so we had a cold brew uh, that we were marketing in a package format back in 2005 and 2006. While we were doing that, I started developing these symptoms of liver disease and um, it was a, a creative thing and I just didn't heed the li any lifestyle change. And the guy says, well, you know, you're, you're doing okay, but I'd go in and have these operations for, 
you know, stints replacements in my, you know, in my bilary duct system and all this stuff. But I just kept plowing ahead. Yeah, so right? what were you, were you ignoring? How were you working? Like, what was your, you seemed like a pretty healthy guy. Like, what, what were you like back then? Well, now, but, you know, liver disease is a debilitating thing. And we didn't know exactly why it was there. Um, they couldn't really figure that all that out. And, and uh, later, um, it all led up to a catastrophic failure of my whole system. But I had, um, you know, I, I just was always thinking about, you know, what I was trying to create. And, and in all honesty, wasn't slowing down and really trying to think about a deeper health. And um, so when I uh, finally just started collapsing, basically my system was shutting down and liver is pervasive. So, you mm -hmm. know, you get, and uh, so long story short, it was getting pretty bad. And at one point, um, you know, I had to get on the transplant list um, and uh, I, I had heard about uh, the same doctor that Steve Jobs had used. And Steve had already, uh, he was still alive at that time, but um, had just had a transplant the year before. And his wife, Lorraine, uh, used to, was an intern at Odwalla at one point before <laughs> she met Steve. That's funny. Um, so they were- Good intern? Oh, awesome intern. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she met Steve the, the fall after that. Um, but they were always really supportive. And uh, so my wife called Lorraine and um, she hooked us up with the same doctor. Um, so we flew there and got there on a Friday and I went in for my big checkup on Monday and while I was there for the checkup the whole thing went kaput oh. and um, so when you have a, a massive failure uh, I won't really describe it but long story short you have about a 48-hour window and uh, so it was you know one the doctors tell me you know this is like a one in a million kind of thing so how'd that change uh, you like your view on work and obviously you're a hard charging <laughs> entrepreneur, but when you walk out of a situation that's life or death, like, well, how have you adjusted your, um, life? good question. And I won't say, you know, all the lessons have been firmly learned because part of it is, um, I, I was blessed with a very successful transplant. So it turned out I had a congenital, deformation of my bile duct system and so you know it, it was just not equipped for uh full it wasn't big enough uh so as i got older it clogged up and you know it caused a failure but i so when uh so backtrack so two years before the transplant we started this i joined with a group of farmers to start Calafia Farms, um, which is, you know, what's <laughs> happening today. And um, that got started when the Adena project, I left it and it's a story unto itself, but it, it's sort of an object lesson and too many cooks spoil the broth, but we had gotten um, some other 
uh, big beverage people, the former chairman of Pepsi, this guy named Roger Enrico who's passed away recently, great guy. Uh, and then a guy named John Bello who had started Sobe Sodas. And, and then an, uh, another investment group and uh, myself and, and the Senegalese uh, woman. So we, there were too many chiefs. And um, so one day I said, you know, this probably isn't the best use of, of my energy. So I left. Literally the next day, the phone rings and, and it's this guy, Bern Evans, who owns a company called, uh, runs a company called Sun Pacific, a big farming operation in the Central Valley. And he said, hey, you know, I've developed a market for all these easy peeling mandarin tangerines and clementines. And um, uh, tangerine juice was a bestseller for Odwalla. Mm. And I actually loved it better than orange juice. You know, it's got the sweet and tart kind of combination. And uh, I thought, wow, to popularize tangerine juice again. And Coke had kind of dropped it from the Odwalla repertoire. So... I love that idea. He asked me to take a look at, you know, assessing that feasibility. We formed a partnership and then launched Cuties Juices for him first. But then I called the company Calafia because um, I had fallen in love with that name. Um, and the name Calafia uh, was derived from the le legend of how Calafia was started. And uh, it was this Amazonian queen who had this kind of matriarchal paradise here. And this was a, a story that was written by this Spanish author back in 1500. I think it was published in 1521 or something like that. And the Chronicles of Esplanade. And, and uh, this, the, the theme was this Spanish, handsome Spanish knight. And um, it was his chronicles. And embedded in that story was this land, mythical island of California. <laughs> and this portrayal of this, like, exotic, you know, prolific island where everything grew, where people spoke to the animals and all this stuff. And it was led by this beautiful, you know, um, fierce women warriors. Uh, I thought it was just such a, you know, cool kind of foundation that, that most Californians have never heard of. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's, let's revive that story because that's worth, you know, retelling. So that was the name, that's where the name came from. Um, we started making this tangerine juice and then meantime I was getting sicker and sicker. And then I realized, um, you know, this was a, this brand was an opportunity to do something I always wanted to, but Odwalla never followed through with were, were these plant-based milks. And the big fundamental difference and the reason they're sort of superior to, to juices are that these milks are very low calorie. Um, you can do them unsweetened. Um, they don't have natural sugars and, and low carbohydrate. So it's a great foundation for making smoothies or whatever people want to do. And obviously lactose free and, and uh, the environmental story behind it is sure. great. So I thought, let's launch this thing. You know, I, I had kind of thrown out this sketch of this curvy bottle that 
we were starting to use and when we put a white label on it and put milk in it, it just looked great. Um, so we thought this, this we could go out and, and really kind of disrupt the, the, the kind of dairy case at that time. And as like literally the month we were launching it, you know, I had my transplant. So you're extremely ill, almost deathly ill, and you're ready to go right back in with another, starting another company. What does your wife say to you at this point? Well, the illness was progressive. So at the time the company started, um, I thought it was all manageable. We we did, you know, even. Um, I think the intensity of starting up a company is always underestimated, you know. Um, so yeah, very difficult period and a lot of trust from my partners, um, and, you know, who were very supportive while I had to start having health treatments and all that. And it's super stressful on, on my wife and family, obviously. And sure. um, I think everyone would have preferred that I just quit working, probably for sure. Um, and then, um, I, I mean, I think it, it, it's anyone that's gone through kind of a um, near-death experience, um, you know, there's probably a common understanding amongst people who, who have had that happen. Um, but, but, but it, it, it was that for me because, you know, you, you kind of go, you do sort of, um, you know, when they, when they take the liver out and there was a period of time leading up to the, um, just during the emergency period of it, where I kind of had to sort of face my own, you know, uh, reality about whether I wanted to go through that as a, you know, um, uh, just choose to, to, to stay here and keep going. Um, and, um, you know, I think the things that are important to you in those situations are your, the people you love and, and your family. Um, and I also felt like in the, when I, came to again and revived that I still had something very important to give back um, or contribute for lack to society for back, lack of a better word. But I just felt like um, the gift of being able to still be here and um, it's a long recovery period from, from organ transplants and um, so I didn't feel very good for probably the first three years. But, wow. Um, now I'm five years into it. And um, thanks to this Dr. Eason and the team at uh, Memphis Methodist who did the transplant, amazing group. And, um, you know, I'm here to tell the story. So, so, so how, does, <laughs> how does, you know, if we take today, you know, we're in 2017 and, and maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, how has, because of that experience, you know, how has your day changed in terms of your mindset, your, uh, your diet, your relationships, your, how you find balance? Like, what did it look like back then and how has it evolved? Yeah, I mean, I, I think objectively I've had a pretty unbalanced um, lifestyle for 
much of my career. There's no question about it. So does peak, what, what did that look like for you? Well, it's just, um, and, and I can't say it's that different, but I've developed some internal thermometers that sort of I listen to now uh, around when, and I'm, you know. Because um, I think every, I'm asking because I think but, every entrepreneur struggles with this. And I think right. specifically in our world, it's right. almost worse because we know. Yeah. Where some people are a little bit ignorant, we actually know. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think it is a kind of genotype for sure. I mean, you either, you have the, the bug and the kind of yeah. drive that you can't get rid of um, or, or you don't. Um, but then also, um, I mean, I was exposed to so many things in this formative years, and I think I just had a kind of expansive mind orientation. So there... To me, I see the confluence of so many ideas and, and uh, potentials, and I, I look around and I see a lot of them having traction in little ways, but then I look at, at the big things like the food system, the global food system, and I just, I see a big mess, you know, <laughs> a, a train wreck kind of coming. and. Um, you know, I, I just feel like there are some imperatives that are important and, and ideas that are important to prove out and just show that they can work and lead by example. So that drive has always been a source of energy. And I think, you know, the doctors even told me, you know, Greg and told my wife, if you tell Greg to quit working, he will you know, so how do you, not so how do you balance that drive? You know that that drive, that passion. How do you how do you balance that today in a way that's healthier than previous years? Well, I think you know entrepreneurs all have inner work to do, um, uh, so that they expose their compulsions you know, and become more conscious about what those are, you know. So those unconscious drivers, and they, they may be in back to the, you know, the classic thing of, you know, things our parents said to us and then, you know, how we were out to prove otherwise, you know, the rest of our lives or, or wounds that we had. Um, but I, I'm kind of a believer in this concept of... Uh, I don't know, I'm going to throw out this term and, you know, get kicked out of some groups because of it, but it's like a sacred wound. So mm -hmm. you, you have these injuries to yourself in a way as a child, and those become at first a weakness or a, a wound or, or you're always compensating for them. And then later, as you start to look at them as sources of strength and... Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can consciously work with them in different ways. So, um, you know, I, that's where the stage of life that I'm at, I, I look to, at these compulsions and try to definitely put them in a context and, and balance them and use them strategically as opposed to just be driven by them. But that's a, that's sure. a constant watchfulness as opposed well, is, to... Is there one thing you practice or do today in an effort to take care of yourself, whether it's, you know, meditation, maybe you didn't do before or something, or you, or you take more vacation time or do something different to start your day. Like how, 
Is there anything like in the day in the life of you that you've changed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, little things. So I'm, I'm, and it's I'm always not, little things. I'm not like, a guru of, of proper lifestyle, but like get Gwyneth on here for all that well, stuff. I don't know about but, that. <laughs> but I'm a, like, I, I'm a, still a pretty driven person, but I think a, the, we're, the concept of mindfulness, you know, and this is what applies to nutrition and diet and all that stuff is the fundamental starting point for all of us. And, you know, you have to be present wherever you are and if you you know the idea of being present is you you know you start to feel your body so listening to what my body was saying like if you you know if you have a headache if you have whatever it is slowing your processes down uh both in breathing and um you know eating slower mm-hmm. um being careful of the proportion of stimulants and and balancing all those things out I think these just like huge gains for most people is strictly things like avoid compulsive eating patterns that are driven by foods that are not not nourishing foods. Right. So um, you know, so less processed carbohydrates is the simplest way I can tell you after four decades <laughs> of like studying all this stuff, and then you can move into things that are really supportive of a healthy immune system like anti-inflammatories like turmeric and uh, adaptogens like ginseng and ashwagandha and um, you know uh, high antioxidant foods like matcha uh, so this is why I'm still fascinated by getting all those products like they've come out full there. circle with like yeah. the, the four sigmatics and moon juices of the world making them cool and interesting and yeah and Calafia has this great yeah. base uh, of these milks and coffees to just add all those things in there and make them even more functional so that idea is inspiring to me because I still find these food swamps food deserts food like you know vacancies everywhere where you can't and and I never really answered your question about way back with Odwalla, and to me it's these are continuums of interest you know you, as an entrepreneur you have to form a corporation or form a brand form a company but those are vehicles for getting these ideas out there in actuality um, but the uh, impulse that started it around having something healthy and good for you available on every street corner that was what drove me back then and today. Right. I just think we should be able to go into any market in the world and buy something that's actually really good for you, that's so, in a package. So where is Calafia today? You've, you've grown quite a bit. You've got, how many SKUs do you have now? <laughs> I don't even know if you... <laughs> well, I think it's if you include some of the foreign language ones, there's probably 90 something. 90 SKUs, right? like you're in... Stock keeping unit, you know, yeah. SK. <laughs> yes. So how, what's the vision and where are you going? And I, I thought it was, you know, I started with the, the nut milks and, I, you know, and the coffee and the cold brew and the nitro and then the, you're back to the juices. I see you're back to your roots. Yeah. And so like, what's, where are you today and, and where are you going? What's the vision? Well, the, you know, the cool thing about being older and, you know, um, and there are some real fun aspects to it actually is, um, you know, you can, 
you, you, you see decade long perspectives, you mm -hmm. know, and now like almost four decades in, in looking at natural foods and where they've come and where they're going is really fun. And um, it, there's, there's uh, uh, this incredible state that we're at right now in the food system where the large global multinational uh, food companies are, are incapable of reacting fast enough to respond to how media like yours and so on have uh, and, and just connectivity between peer-to-peer -peer knowledge sharing and people who can change their life and then they tell their friend this is what I did and then their friends try it and it works like you know stop eating dairy or you know um, go gluten-free for a while and see how you feel and you know some of these big ideas uh, of which I think plant-based thinking or plant-centric diets are the is the most accessible and big idea out there um, which is easy to getting easier and easier to apply um, but I still think we need companies like Calfia who who can scale and grow with this movement lead in some cases but um, be an inspiration point, but be an available product availability point for people who travel and outside of Brooklyn and <laughs> San Francisco, you know, and all the groovier places where it's easy to find some of this good right. stuff, you know, but you go in the rest of the country and even the influence of this natural food movement on other countries now. Um, sure. So, for example, we just launched in um, the UK and uh, both in Whole Foods, but also in a in a chain called Sainsbury there, and um, it, it it's doing extremely well. Um, and this idea of California healthiness and and uh, the California vision is something that's. Uh, very contagious, I think, sure. globally, actually. So I think probably in terms of scale, you're probably bigger than Adwala ever was now already. Oh, close yeah. To it. Well, I don't know about ever was because Coke uh, wouldn't well, share pre -Coke. with me. But, um, oh, yeah, it's more than twice as big as at wow. the time of the sale um, in, in just uh, four or five years, probably. But so what is the vision? Do you want to, do you think... I'm curious in terms of expansion and SKUs and, and where you're going and where do you see beverage going? Do you see, yeah. in some ways, with scale, do you think you can be the next Coke? Well, well you know, it, I, but or, that, that's like... Um, I mean, or the next White Wave or, or whoever. No, I, I mean, there's my, my personal way of thinking about it and then obviously we're an organization with investors and future investors and and uh, a lot of key people that have to make all this happen. So, I mean, as the founder entrepreneur, you know, I have my, my point of view. And um, I think um, there's, there's a, and what it can be takes a lot of effort to realize that potential. And I guess that's the central point of my life, in life's work, I guess, is to try the best as I can to point Calafia to the future as an independent company or in a, in a form in which it has the greatest self-direction uh, mm -hmm. and realization of its highest potential. And I think its highest potential is best, best managed 
independently for as long as possible. Because there are forces in the, you know, the publicly held companies, and I, I don't know if any guests have talked to you about this 3G, and there's this, the big food companies are under pressure from this zero-based budgeting management style that has been perfected by a lot of uh, Brazilian management teams that are running AB and Bev and, mm. and might threaten even Coke as far as ownership. Um, but, th but this management style is extremely efficient. It strips out anything extraneous, and, but R&D, innovation, and product development are usually the first to go, and they're minimized. And uh, it's all about dividend and margin expansion. And so as the bulk of the world's food companies, which are supplying good part of the developed world's food, and then employing a good part of you know the rest of the world's resources um, are being driven by this profit maximization to the extreme. It's not like you know. So how do they balance that? Because at the same time they're losing market share, and they they invest. They, they realize they have to invest in natural. They're acquiring companies. You know, right. Kavitas buy. Right. Like, so how do you? Well, there's a kind of a, a, a frenzy in a way to 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 buy the growth because you know you can't innovate. You, you, you structurally can't, right. and you, you also you're driving a tanker which can't be turned very fast, right? <laughs> I like so, that. so, so that's why you know the 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 like nimble companies and and Calfee is kind of a, a you Do know you think you're still nimble a black thing? swan in a way. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean we're more nimble than I think we can even deal with. <laughs> you know? and so the the. You know, we look at three structures of our business. We have an innovation driver. We have a commercialization in which we, you know, try to get, we, we incubate in natural foods and then spread through the, the larger formats. And then we have a kind of a base business which does the day-to-day -day and you look to optimize that. So we have to remain competitive and we also, as a company, if we want to remain independent, we have to learn how to be our own big brother. You know, we have so, to uh, grow up by ourselves and not let someone else do the growing up. So you do know? you have any exciting news about SKUs coming out or anything you can share? That's There's just, always that's exciting. You know, There's like a ton of exciting <laughs> news, you know? Well, what can you um, share with us? Well, I, I mean, just we're here right now, happen to be at the Fancy Food Show in New York this week, and, um, you know, we're premiering a big expansion of this line called Better Half of these coffee creamers. Wow. So um, a lot of entrepreneurs like myself, you get this rock in your shoe, and it's kind of a pet peeve, and, like, I hated that there's this, you know, two billion dollar business of coffee creamers that has a bunch of crap in it <laughs> and you know so we created better half as a way to create just go back to the simple half and half idea but there's a here's a vegan you know plant-based sure. solution to that and by the way you can make a great creamer that's unsweetened so maybe yeah. i should ask you what other things bother you in beverage to figure out what else, what else you're going <laughs> to Add. Well, coffee bugged me, you know, that you have these sugar-laden coffee drinks yeah. with burnt milk and burnt coffee and all this other stuff proliferating. So, like, cold brew was just plain better, which is why we got passionate about cold Love brew. Love your nitro. Like, yeah. And then you add nitro to it, and all of a sudden you have this super creamy, you know, fun mouthfeel 
that actually has, has a lot of pleasure in something you can drink out of a you know out of a bottle. So, so what do you think about Whole Foods Amazon? Oh man, you know, I mean, there's so many opinions out there. So I I don't know that mine is worth more than anyone else's. I think it's I think it's fascinating. I think it's um, actually energizing and super interesting for those of us that are um, working with both Whole Foods and Amazon. And our team did an amazing job to earn us the, the vendor of the year at Whole Foods this year. So we kind of have a, a unique position and I think we're in their top 12 providers, uh, vendors. Uh, but it's, I, I have concerns because Amazon culture is extremely different from the core, um, the, the great culture, the great part of Whole Foods culture. But I think obviously Whole Foods ran into, you know, challenges. You've had John on the show, you know, before. And um, I think change has to happen and it forces innovation. And if this makes natural foods a little bit more accessible, more affordable, easier for people to get conveniently to their homes, which I think is is the the whole uh, great like big idea behind all this. Um, I think it'll be great, but I think it's going to be a lot of chaos along the way and and a lot of reinvention. So, for, what has you most excited about the natural product space? Any trends? Like it used to be back in the eighties and nineties, we were proselytizing basically or educating. This is like, and everything was taken with a grain of salt. Now, everyone, it's it's. The culture at large, and you can, you know, even the New York Times embraces a lot of these ideas. And these healthy eating and taking care of yourself through whole, like whole food components, Mm -hmm. and that type of nutrition and nourishment is what I think most people who have, you know, a basic education have uh, realized is what, how they have to treat themselves. And the linkage between healthcare costs and food as as a time of medicine in a way, sure. you know, and you don't use medicine to wait until you're ill and then fix it. You use preventative medicine, which is good food, you know, right. and good food components and or you know, I mean, herbalism and and a lot of that. So, I just I think it's hugely exciting because the entrepreneurs who provide good products and can do it reliably and make them available, it's. And- any yeah. small scrappy guys out there? You're like that reminds me of me when I was <laughs> starting out, or small scrappy brands, or oh, there's a ton of them. I mean, it, like, I mean, it's ironic sitting here in Brooklyn. I mean, you guys, but there's Brooklyn, there's Portland, there's Santa Cruz, there, you know, there's obviously, you know, Boulder and and any, you know, practically any major metro center now has its own food entrepreneurs. They're doing great things. So that's more than I can say. <laughs> um, then there's great companies like Guayaki who have, have bringing yerba mate sure. for a long time and totally dedicated to sustainable and fair trade and, and a lot of that. And you know, I love those four sigmatic guys. And you know, there's a, a a ton of specialty coffee as an industry who's become our partner since we developed this barista blend product that pairs well with specialty coffee finesse you know and it's and it doesn't curdle and all that stuff so 
we've become an integral part of the specialty coffee industry, which is totally creative. I mean, there's just, as, and as that explodes with things like matches and turmeric and all this um, adaptogenic herbs coming into the mix, it's um, super exciting. And, you know, making these products available to people across the country so they can go to an airport and find this stuff or you can be at a corner store in an inner city and have these all throughout Harlem. And, I mean, there's still so much work to do to get this food out so it's available, you know, wherever people work or shop or, you know, tra- you know travel. So if there's one thing you could change about the natural products industry, what would that be? Oh, I would have um, got, um, maybe kept some of the cooperatives that were distributors who were somehow managing to keep fairer margins and uh, I think there's too much expense and cost and I don't want to say fat but just inefficiencies in the middle layer so the costs that get loaded onto a small entrepreneur between their their production and what the end price prices a lot of those guys out of what bigger national brands that have less good products. And uh, I think that's that's been a disadvantage. And, you know, e-commerce isn't cheap either, so it, it's um, that's still a challenge. So getting, you know, I, I think attainable uh, prices for people so they can afford to eat well, you know, uh, is still a big need. And the last question, if you could go back in time and give your 20-something self-advice when you were first starting out, what would that be? Whoa. <laughs> um, take care of your liver. That would have been... <laughs> <laughs> <So how? laughs> um, oh, I think, you know, you have to practice what you preach is, you know. Um, and I, I would have said, uh, you know, Keep, don't stop practicing your saxophone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Greg. Honor to have you here. Yeah, that was great. Thank you for all the good questions. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs>